Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. This is Monitor Monday for May 17, 2021, a special 60-minute edition. Here's today's rundown. An appeals decision regarding an emergency department and a major payer could impact your emergency department. Dr. John K. Hall has our lead story. After reviewing thousands and thousands of B&M claims, Frank Cohen reveals some surprising results, including medical necessity audits. Has America really turned the corner on the deadly coronavirus? Dr. John Fogel has the latest update, plus a report on vaccinating America. We'll also hear from healthcare attorney Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink-Samnick, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney David Glazer, Dr. John Selim, and Mary Inman. Now here's the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, says it's okay to vaccinate kids, those between 12 and 15, but they say nothing about getting them into the car to get vaccinated. The CDC also reports that nearly 38% of the U.S. population has now been vaccinated. We'll have a complete report when Dr. John Vogel joins us later in the broadcast. And finally, CMS is warning hospitals to disclose their payer-negotiated rates or face penalties and possible shaming. Hospitals have 90 days to comply. We have much news to report, and we begin this morning with Dr. Ronald Hirsch, who is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1 Physician Advisory Solutions. Here now making his Monday rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Well, good morning, all. Now, let me start with a disclaimer. I'm going to share with you some anecdotal information. But it's not one anecdote, it's many, all showing the same issues, and that's why it's worth talking about. So what's the issue? It's United Healthcare's adoption of the use of interqual criteria for de- determining admission status. For those that were not aware, Optum, the owner of UHC, bought Change Healthcare in January. Change Healthcare produces interqual, so naturally UHC switched from MCG care guidelines to interqual. Now let me be clear here. There's no evidence that UHC has modified Interqual in order to be able to deny more admissions, although many are worried that that may happen in the future. So what is happening? Well, the transition from MCG to Interqual has been a complete mess. While MCG and Interqual are both commercial criteria sets, going from one to another is not like flipping a switch. And it appears that many of the UHC employees do not have a full understanding of how Interqual works and how to properly determine the correct criteria set and how to properly determine the correct status. One thing I heard several times was that if a patient passes inpatient, excuse me, passes observation criteria, they stop there and would not even consider if the patient passed inpatient criteria or not. I heard of one perforated bowel who obviously would pass inpatient criteria who was only approved for observation. Another patient with a major thoracic surgery was approved for observation, and the hospital was told that inpatient could only be approved on post-op day three. And although it's not new, the use of time is the only determinant for approving inpatient admission, often requiring 48 to 72 hours of hospital care to pass, seems to be increasing. Now, why does this irk me? Well, anyone who's used Interqual and MCG know they are significantly different and that a full understanding on the use of Interqual takes time. Yet UHC rolls out this change with what seems to be insufficient education of their employees. Aren't they supposed to be the experts? 
why should hospital staff have to spend time teaching UHC staff how to properly use Interqual? Second, how can they stop at passing observation criteria? Every single patient that passes inpatient criteria also passes observation criteria. If that's truly the direction given, it's clearly irrational and can, be, can only be motivated by greed. So why do I report anecdotes? As I said, if this is your experience, you're not alone. Don't sit back and take it. It's not our job to put, to put up with their unpreparedness. You know what happens if you don't follow the rule that they set? They show no mercy. Ask for that patient's, person's supervisor and file a complaint. Tell your contracting and finance people what's happening and the financial consequences of these happenings and ask them to call the insurer. And if you have the time, file a complaint with your state insurance department. Again, these are anecdotes, and we hope it's a learning curve, but it does not look nice. Now, in much more boring news, don't say I didn't warn you. After all my segments about inpatient rehab audits, CMS just announced that the supplemental medical review contractor is going to start auditing ERF admissions. But inexplicably, they will limit their audits to admissions with lengths of stay over eight days. I wonder how well their auditors will interpret the rules. That's all for me, Chuck. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1RCM, Ronald Hirsch, MD. Dr. Hirsch is making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. Here now with the Monitor Monday RAC Report is Healthcare Attorney Nicole Emanuel. Good morning, Nicole. Hello, and happy RAC Monitor Monday. Changes of ownership of a facility can spur RAC, MAC, and MCO audits. In fact, federal regulations require disclosure of changes of ownership within 35 days after any change of ownership. That's 42 CFR 455-104. The regulations require disclosure, but there's no guidance regarding acceptance of said change of ownership. In other words, what if your company undergoes a change in ownership and the MCO or MAC terminates the participation agreement because they don't appreciate who the new owner is? Now, the federal regulations also require disclosure of any convictions related to Medicaid, and that's 42 CFR 455-106. In this particular case that I'm discussing today, the MCO had audited this company 10 to 15 times over the last two years. There seemed to be some sort of personal vendetta for whatever reason against the company from the higher-ups at the MCO. And now managed care can be tricky because by definition, it removes the management of Medicaid and Medicare from the government agencies into these quasi-private slash quasi-governmental agencies. And I still think that managed care may violate 42 CFR 410E, the single state agency requirement that states that the Medicaid agency may not delegate to other than its own officials the authority to supervise the plan or to develop or issue policies rules and regulations on program matters. But despite my personal opinion, managed care is definitely the trend. To date, 40 states have managed care organizations managing Medicaid in their states. Now, this company is a behavioral health care provider providing substance abuse, SAOP, SACOT, PSR, OPT, urine tests. They've got a Suboxone clinic and a laboratory and a pharmacy. It also provides free transportation services to get the consumers to the facility without receiving any money in return. 
the CEO was accused of personal tax fraud. Now, you have to understand, he and his wife never submitted their own taxes. They relied on professionals. So one below-seller accountant performed the company's taxes and the CEO's personal taxes uh, on a certain, you know, a few years ago. And I'm no tax expert, but apparently the problem was something about him not taking a salary for two years while the facility was bringing in little profit. Now, his wife's a physician, so they were able to sustain on one income. And after a lot of confusion later and multiple, multiple tax and criminal lawyers, the CEO ends up pleading guilty to a personal tax plea. Now, this is a Martha Stewart mistake, not a Bernie Madoff mistake. The guilty plea was not germane to Medicaid. But once the CEO pleads guilty to the personal plea, the newspapers publishes a story. And the MCO first terminates the contract based on 42 CFR 455-106, which requires disclosure of a conviction related to Medicaid. Now, remember, this guilty plea was not related to Medicaid, so the termination was erroneous. Concurrently, in light of the CEO's plea, he steps down as CEO, and Dr. Weiss steps in as CEO to keep the company going. And obviously, a company is bigger than its CEO's personal transgressions. This company employs 200 staff, and hundreds of consumers relies on the viability as a company. So once we argue that the personal guilty plea was not related to Medicaid, the MCO suddenly changed its tune and added the additional reason for termination, failing to disclose the change of ownership, a double whammy. Well, we were able to successfully file a preliminary injunction arguing that irreparable harm would ensue if the termination were upheld. We also argued that the terminations were erroneous. The judge agreed in this case, agreeing that a company is indeed bigger than its CEO's transgression. We always think about audits involving medical records, but audits can also involve corporate disclosures or non-disclosures of managerial issues. So make sure you check on those regulations and abide by those. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Nicole. That was Nicole Emanuel. Nicole is a partner of the law firm of practice. And coming up at about 11 minutes after the hour in your time zone, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Sandwick, Dr. John K. Hall, Frank Cohen, Dr. John Fogel, Mary Inman, and Dr. John Zellum. This is Monday. It's May 17th, and you're listening to a live, special 60-minute edition of Monitor Monday. Stand by. Doctors go to medical school, nurses go to nursing school, but there is no school for utilization review, and that's a problem, because the world of utilization review in Medicare is very difficult. Fortunately, an upcoming webcast with Dr. Ronald Hirsch addresses those core issues. Things I Wish I Learned When I Started Utilization Review is a remarkable webcast led by Dr. Hirsch. It's a back-to-basics tutorial for utilization review of what Medicare provides and does not provide and how Medicare pays hospitals for both inpatient and outpatient services. This special live webcast is coming up Thursday, June 10th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Plan to attend Things I Wish I Learned When I'd Started Utilization Review. Register now. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. And David, as I say every Monday morning, what could be risky this morning? 
Well, Chuck, I'm going to put in a plug for Dr. Hirsch's webcast because here's something I'm glad I learned from Dr. Hirsch because the risk is that Dr. Hirsch won't save you from making a big mistake. I was all set to talk about shared visits today when Ron called my attention to the fact that CMS had pulled the shared visit language from the manuals earlier this month. So first, what is a shared visit? It's an encounter in the hospital where a physician and a non-physician practitioner, like a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, both see the patient. It can be extraordinarily difficult to understand how Medicare differentiates between services that are considered incident to and shared visits. There's good reason for the confusion. Some of the guidance from CMS conflates the two terms. And intellectually, shared visits seem like a subset of incident to encounters. Making matters worse, there's no statutory or regulatory reference to shared visits. They existed only in the manuals. And as we discussed last week, manuals aren't binding. This means that on some level, shared visits arguably don't even exist. And now that the manual language has been deleted, that argument seems stronger. But since CMS has said they will still cover them, I think I'm on board with the idea of continuing to use them. On a macro level, it's helpful to recognize that incident two is used in a clinic. And by clinic, I mean a freestanding facility that has no associated facility fee. Shared visits are, or were, used in the hospital inpatient or outpatient department. There's a policy reason for the difference. Medicare has a regulation found at 42 CFR 411.15 parens M that specifically excludes a variety of services to hospital inpatients. Included in the list of services that aren't covered in the hospital are services incident to a physician's service. In other words, a physician can't bill for services incident to the physician's work when they're done in the hospital. Now, one quick side note. Unfortunately, Medicare does refer to a wide variety of hospital services as being covered incident two. Regretfully, they've used the same term multiple times, but with a different meaning. But when CMS is talking about hospital services incident two, they're talking about services covered by the facility fee, not professional services. I know that this is confusing, but that's a whole topic for another day. Just focus right now on the fact we're talking about services both performed and billed by a physician. So recognizing that there are times when a physician and a non-physician practitioner might both provide services to hospital inpatients and outpatients, Medicare wanted to find a way to make the billing work. The result was the shared visit. When a physician and non-physician practitioner sees the patient and the physician provided any face-to-face -face portion of the E&M encounter with the patient, the two visits were combined into one, according to the now deleted language in the Medicare Claims Processing Manual, Chapter 12, Section 30.6.1. That section now says, left intentionally blank for future updates. Note that a different section of the manual, also deleted, discusses or discussed SNF visits, and some contractors used that to come up with a slightly different test they would assert that the physician had to do a substantial portion of the work. And they said that the substantial portion included an element of the history exam or the medical decision-making. Those two instructions were not the same. You can provide medical decision-making without having a face-to-face -face encounter. There was a ton of crummy writing here, and that may explain why it's been deleted. So where are we right now? 
Well, I guess it's still appropriate to combine the work of two professionals who see the patient in the hospital, as long as both of the professionals have actually seen the patient. If the physician has done any part of the exam or history, which in my mind could extend to saying, how are you, or looking at the patient's respiratory effort, you can bill for the combined effort of the non-physician and the physician on one claim and get reimbursed at the higher rate that's paid to the physician. While you can do basically the same thing in the clinic, and it would still be called billing incident two, in the hospital, the term, at least historically, that's been used to describe it is a shared visit. And it looks like CMS is covering them despite the absence of any clear guidance or instruction. So I know this is complicated, but today's a town hall edition. So if you have a question, you can send it in and hopefully we'll have time for it. So Chuck, if I come on too strong, I hope that you will understand, as I paraphrase Dr. Hook in the Medicine Show, that's what happens when I discuss sharing the visits together. Oh yeah, all right. If I seem to come on too strong, I hope that you will understand. I say these things cause I'd like to know if you're as lonely as I am. And if you'd mind sharing the night. Oh, yeah. Back to you. Thanks, David, very much. That was healthcare attorney David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. Good morning, Alan. Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. Last fall, I reported on the rise of Medicare Advantage plans, most of them adding coverage for the social determinants. Of 62 million Medicare beneficiaries, over 24 million enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans by the end of 2020, roughly 40% of the population. The Congressional Budget Office projects the trend to continue with a rising share of all beneficiaries enrolled in these plans by 2030, almost 51%. Nine states have high penetration of Medicare Advantage enrollees, some well over 40%, especially Alaska, Delaware, Illinois, Kentucky, Maryland, Michigan, New Jersey, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Now, close to 20% of current beneficiaries are covered by group retiree plans offered by employers and unions. In these situations, employers or unions contract with insurers from Medicare to pay the insurer a fixed amount per enrollee and provide benefits covered by Medicare. The employer or union, and sometimes the retiree, may pay a premium for additional benefits or lower cost sharing. United Healthcare plans to support these beneficiaries through their Healthy at Home program coming in January 2022. Created for group retiree Medicare Advantage plans, the program will provide access to benefits that address social needs. The new benefit will emphasize keeping retirees healthy in their homes and be facilitated through employers and plan sponsors. The benefits target three resources to often top our social determinants list, nutritional or food sufficiency, transportation, and home care. Post-discharge meal delivery will include 28 meals, two meals per day for two weeks, available following any inpatient or skilled nursing facility discharge 
for retirees when referred by a United Healthcare advocate who will contact patients post discharge. Post discharge transportation will include up to 12 one way rides to and from medically related appointments and the pharmacy following every inpatient or skilled nursing facility discharge. Finally, in-home personal care will be provided following all discharges up to six hours work. Retirees will receive assistance with daily living activities to support their recovery and follow-up care to reduce risk of hospital readmission. Other Medicare Advantage plans are on the move. Humana announced their $8.1 billion acquisition of Kindred's at-home program, a network of 43,000 caregivers across 550,000 patients in 40 states. Emphasis will be on ensuring proactive care to address the social determinants, particularly in the areas of primary care, telehealth, and the emergency department. About 65% of Humana's individual Medicare Advantage plan membership have access to Kindred's at-home services. In terms of market share for 2020, United Healthcare and Humana accounted for 44% of all Medicare Advantage enrollees across the U.S. Blue Cross Blue Shield affiliates, including Anthem, accounted for another 15%, and CVS Health, Kaiser Permanente, Centene, and Cigna comprised another 23%. We can expect further Medicare Advantage enhancements across the board. Remember, should these enrollees require inpatient hospital stays, many of their plans charge a daily copayment starting day one compared to deductibles charged by traditional Medicare plans. These can get costly for patients and providers. Extra benefits to keep them out of the hospital is a win for all. Our Monitor Monday survey wants to know, how much will Medicare Advantage benefit enhancements keep your fiscal bottom line in tow? Very little, somewhat, a great deal, do not know, does not apply. We'll view the results in a bit. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Samnick. And as Alan said, we're going to have the results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey later in this broadcast. An appeals decision regarding an emergency department and a major payer could impact your emergency department. Here now to report this developing story is Dr. John K. Hall. Good morning, Dr. Hall. Good morning and thank you, Chuck. It's great to be back. As you said, today I want to review the October 2020 decision of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals in the matter of American College of Emergency Physicians, or ACEP, versus Blue Cross Blue Shield of Georgia. About four years ago, Blue Cross rolled out a policy in several states and informed patients that it would not pay for emergency room visits if it determined that the visit was for non-emergent reasons. The denials are all post hoc and based on the final coded diagnosis and a review by a Blue Cross physician, not a layperson. This policy immediately raised concerns regarding both its adverse impact on patient safety as well as its legality. In Georgia, the policy resulted in a denial of about a third of the claims that were reviewed. The vast majority of these denials were subsequently overturned. The ACEP and the Medical Association of Georgia filed suit in federal district court against Blue Cross in, Ju- in July of 20, 2018. Whew, sorry. Among other things, the ACEP was, sought, was seeking enforcement of the prudent layperson standard, an injunction against implementation of the policy, and payments for all benefits due under ERISA plans. The district court dismissed the claim, but a subsequent appeal to the 11th Circuit resulted in reversal and remand. 
But before we break out the bubbly and celebrate, recall this only means that the ACEP will get its day in court. There are, nevertheless, important findings for the circuit court. First, based heavily on the fact that a written assessment of a written assignment of benefits was obtained, the court affirmed that the ACEP does have a right to bring suit, and that right includes equitable relief. Second, the prudent layperson standard applies to essentially all insurance plans. With regard to the standard, the court found the standard doesn't look to the ultimate diagnosis the patient receives. The only relevant considerations are the presenting symptoms and whether a prudent layperson would think the emergency medical attention was required based on those symptoms. And finally, the court unambiguously states, and I love this quote, the diagnosis that the patient ultimately receives is irrelevant. There are many fine points for resolution at trial, but we can immediately recognize that the circuit court decision is not going to protect us if there is no assignment of benefits or there is definitive documentation that the visit is non-emergent. So what do we do in the meantime? Keep track of your denials and your appeals until all of the trial and appeal proceedings are complete. Invoke the prudent layperson standard and call out Blue Cross for its review process. Leverage the circuit court's assertion that the ultimate diagnosis is irrelevant. Secure an assignment of benefits for every encounter. And finally, whenever possible, document the patient's assessment of the illness severity, including the patient's understanding of available alternative sites and if the sites would be able to provide the care the patient needs. And always document when another provider has sent the patient to the ED. This seems especially pertinent if the provider is sent, if the patient is sent by another participating provider. Chuck, this case is far from over, and the losing party will almost certainly appeal because the stakes are really high. Back to you. Thanks, Dr. Hall. That was physician and attorney Dr. John K. Hall. Dr. Hall is the founder of the Aegeus Group. Senior healthcare analyst Frank Cohen joins us now to report on his latest analysis of the 2021 E&M guidelines for office visits. And Frank, what surprised you most in your analysis? You know, it's been a few months now, right, since the 2021 E&M guidelines have been in effect. We're coming up on six months in June, and I just completed my first analysis on the office visits, which were most affected. So I have data from about 69,000 providers and pretty close to 100 uh, different practices, all types and sizes. So from this, I pulled and analyzed the almost 30 million billed office visits for 2020 and almost 7 million for uh, the first quarter of 2021. And there were some big changes, but maybe not as many surprises. For, for one, as I expected, the 99201 utilization pretty much dropped off the charts completely. We expected that. For office visits, though, the 99204 was up over 40%, and the 99205 was up nearly 15%. So what I did is I broke it out by specialty type. So I have primary care providers, you know, pediatrics and, and uh, internal medicine and general practice and family and some of the others. And, and so for the primary care, um, they actually were up on the 04s by 51% and the 05s by almost 30%. And, and this type of right shifting always causes me concern with respect to audit risk. What I didn't expect to see, um, with the exception of surgical specialties that weren't involved in this, was there was also a big increase in the reporting of 99212. I don't know where that came from, but the 211s had a reduction of over 11%. So, you know, it's definitely sliding up and not sliding down. I also saw a sizable increase 
in the use of the 99215 code. And that was up over 50% for both surgical and primary, primary care specialties. And even the other specialties that were not classified in those, they were up almost 20%. So we had an overall increase of 30% for all the physicians reported in all the different practices. And unfortunately, this kind of supports CMS's concerns that these guidelines were going to cause some behavioral changes in the physician's coding patterns. But the real proof is in the audit findings, meaning did those build services survive a post-audit chart review? Well, let's find out because I reviewed audited encounters for 2020 and 2021, both. And I have about 51,000 audited E&M encounters for these office visits. And of these, about 80% met documentation criteria for that level. Okay, about 80% um, said, yes, this was done properly, they passed. Of the remaining 20%, Seven and a half percent were actually undercoded, nine and a half percent were overcoded, and three percent were the wrong category or had some other issue. Now, for medical necessity audits, um, what we saw in 2020 pretty much the same now 94 in 2020 and 96 percent met the criteria, getting a passing score. Um, when I looked at the, compared um, the first quarter of 2021, 28 percent more of them were overcoded of the ones that didn't pass and 12.7% more were undercoded. So it was, it was weird how that all worked out. Uh, that was a bit of a surprise to me. Now, when we break this down by new and established office visits, the picture changes a bit. So for 2020, about 69% of the uh, met the documentation criteria, while in 2021, it was about 75.2%. So we had a fairly decent increase uh, between those two years. Um, of those that failed due to documentation issues, uh, there was a reduction in all three of the categories. And, and this is this is just something called a Simpson's paradox. So the numbers don't seem intuitively that they add up, but they do. Nine and a half percent for undercoded, 19 percent for overcoded, and 39 percent, 40 percent for the other issues. So it, in conclusion, it appears that the new guidelines have caused some significant shifting in office visits, mostly in the form of uh, lower level codes to higher codes. But after the audit results are in, we see that the documentation medical necessity rates uh, the pass rates are either the same or slightly better than the year before. So at least when it comes to uh, documentation of office visits, while there's been a right shift, well, they're justified based on the audit. So the big question now for me is how do the medical decision-making results look? And Chuck, I hope to have a report to you on that by the first week of June. So stand by, and that's the world according to Frank. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Frank. That was Frank Cohen, the Director of Business Intelligence for Doctors Management, and you can read his report in the current edition of Rack Monitor. We now check in with famed whistleblower attorney Barry Inman. She is calling in to report on three whistleblower cases. The first of these involves kickbacks styled as charitable donations. So, Mary, what's the latest on the case involving Insight? Thanks, Chuck. Last week, the Department of Justice announced that Delaware pharmaceutical company Insight Corporation has agreed to pay $12.6 million to resolve allegations that it violated the False Claims Act by paying kickbacks to Medicare beneficiaries to increase prescriptions for its drug, Jacoffey, which is used to treat myelofibrosis, a form of leukemia that causes extensive scarring and bone marrow and leads to severe anemia and fatigue. Because of its high cost, 
to coffee costs roughly $15,000 per patient per month or $200,000 per year. Insight is alleged to have been the sole donor of a charitable patient assistance program designed to provide economic assistance to help patients afford the costly copays they must make to receive Jacoffi and, and thereby improperly steer patients to its drug. Insight is the latest in a long list of False Claims Act settlements the Department of Justice has reached with pharmaceutical companies, including Actelion, Agerion, Amgen, United Therapeutics, Jazz, Astellas, Alexion, Sanofi, Aventis, Gilead, and Pfizer, accused of making conditional donations to patient assistance programs, providing copay assistance to increase their drug profits. We have previously reported on several of these settlements for Rack Monitor in covering this growing DOJ enforcement trend. DOJ's recoveries in these False Claims Act cases, which heretofore had only been prosecuted generally by the U.S. Attorney's Office in Boston, total well over a billion dollars. The genesis of this seemingly industry-wide fraud scheme stems from Medicare rules whereby beneficiaries often are required to pay a fee, typically in the form of a copayment or a deductible, when they pick up medications that Medicare covers. Drug makers reimbursing patients for these costs may run afoul of the anti-kickback statute, which prohibits pharmaceutical companies from paying kickbacks, remuneration, or anything of value to induce patients to purchase or use their drugs. The allegations against all of these pharmaceutical companies involve a similar scheme in which the companies disguise kickbacks to patients as charitable donations from purportedly independent foundations. In fact, these foundations were generally alleged to have been controlled by the drug companies and were set up with a goal of increase, to increase the sale of certain high-cost drugs that the pharma companies manufacture. Research has shown that pharmaceutical patient assistance programs can lead to higher drug prices by steering patients away from generic drugs and other less costly alternatives, leading to the imposition of federal regulations limiting such programs. Generally, the copay amount is determined as a percentage of the cost of the drug. Hence, the more expensive a drug is, the higher the out-of-pocket cost for the patient. The goal of the patient copay policy is that market forces will drive patients towards cheaper alternatives and result in lower drug prices overall. Drug makers are not allowed to directly cover prescription copayments for Medicare or Medicaid beneficiaries, although they are welcome to donate to bona fide independent charities. In the recent Insight case, Insight was accused of setting up a charitable foundation and being the foundation's only donor. After the foundation opened, the government alleged that Insight used the foundation to pay the copays of federal health care beneficiaries taking Jacoffi who were ineligible for assistance from the fund because they did not have myelofibrosis, the condition the FDA approved Jacoffi to treat, and instead pressuring extra prescriptions of Jacoffi for an off-label use. Insight managers called and emailed the foundation, of which they were the sole donors, to pressure it to provide copay assistance to these ineligible Jacoffi patients. The Insight case has three notable takeaways. First, there's a mix of frauds. These allegations involve a notable combination of two common types of healthcare fraud, copay waivers and off-label promotion. Most of the previous settlements were almost exclusively based around steering patients towards more expensive drugs than potential alternatives, but the patients were otherwise qualified for Medicare reimbursement of the relevant drugs. Here, the government accused Insight of promoting Jacoffi off-label 
through this foundation using copay subsidies, an, an expansion of the types of potential case fact patterns that the government is interested in pursuing in this area. Second, most of the 11 previous cases settled in this area did not involve whistleblowers, instead were directly brought by the government. The predominance of these successful cases having been initiated by the government without a whistleblower is unusual in the current climate where roughly 70% of healthcare fraud settlements are directly due to whistleblowers launching cases. This case was first filed in 2018 by whistleblower Justin Dillon, who was then employed as a senior director in Insight's compliance department. Dillon had worked for Insight for approximately three years and had more than 22 years of experience in the pharmaceutical industry. Insight terminated Mr. Fillet, Mr. Dillon in October 2018, allegedly as retaliation for raising numerous compliance issues with Insight management. Finally, Dorothy were not in Boston anymore. The vast majority of the previous cases were brought and pursued by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Massachusetts based in Boston. However, the Insight case was investigated and settled by the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania based in Philadelphia, suggesting that these types of cases have a broadening geographic scope. We expect this DOJ enforcement trend to continue and grow as additional DOJ offices gain expertise and experience in this area. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks very much, Mary. That was famous whistleblower attorney, Mary Inman. Mary is a partner in the law firm of Constantine Cannon, and Mary returns to the broadcast later with two more reports of whistleblower cases, both of these involving very prominent names. Coming up next, is America really turning the corner on the deadly coronavirus? Dr. John Fogel is standing by. This is Monitor Monday. It's a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. Stand by. Medical necessity is the Rubik's Cube of healthcare. The concept is used to determine if a patient's care is a covered service, but that simple explanation belies layers of confusion and contradiction. Medical necessity, in some cases, becomes the license payers use to deny claims. Just as there are lessons learned in solving Rubik's Cube, in an on-demand webcast by Dr. Ronald Hirsch, you will learn how to solve the troublesome riddle of medical necessity. And for a limited time, when you download Dr. Hirsch's webcast, you'll receive a free on-demand webcast on condition code 44. So download the medical necessity webcast with Dr. Hirsch and get the condition code 44 webcast free. Is America turning the corner on the deadly coronavirus? And what about vaccination rates in this country? Here now with the very latest update on both of these healthcare issues is our good friend, Dr. John Fogel. And good morning, Dr. Fogel. Good morning. Thank you, Chuck. It's hard to believe that we've been living through this pandemic for more than 14 months. Nearly 600,000 Americans have died from the coronavirus. But the COVID-19 news keeps getting better and better in the United States. The vaccines are super safe and effective. More than 37% of all Americans are fully vaccinated. Vaccine eligibility has been lowered to age 12 and up. Hospitalizations and deaths continue to fall. And last Friday, the CDC announced the previously unthinkable. Fully vaccinated individuals no longer need to wear masks outdoors or even indoors unless masks are mandated by law or businesses have absolute rules. Personally, I think the CDC went too far with these new guidelines. It's not because I felt naked this morning when I walked into the local Starbucks without my mask. Starbucks, like many other retailers, 
has chosen to follow the CDC. My concern is that we haven't fully vaccinated enough Americans. We need to be closer to 70% and that we are relying on an honor code when someone states but doesn't have to prove that they've been fully vaccinated. These newest guidelines don't incentivize vaccinations. And some recent news may discourage people from receiving their shots. We had a brief pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine to assess a potential safety concern regarding blood clots, an extremely rare but dangerous side effect. The J&J product has been declared to be and is safe, but I know some people who are now more resistant to receiving any vaccine. And in the last week, nine fully vaccinated members of the New York Yankees tested positive for COVID-19. Remember that there's never been a vaccine that's 100% effective in disease prevention. More important is how a vaccine prevents significant illness and death. That's where the COVID-19 vaccines have been best. Only one of the COVID-positive Yankees even had any symptoms. Combining the new relaxed CDC guidelines with the fact that you can still get and transmit COVID-19 despite being fully vaccinated means we could see another spike in cases. It's all the more reason why we need to conquer vaccine hesitancy and race to vaccinate more Americans. And the news overseas is particularly disturbing. The global death toll from COVID-19 is pushing 3.5 million. It's going to continue to soar because less than 10% of the world's population is fully vaccinated. It's only a few percent when high-income countries are excluded from the data. Much of the world is now experiencing the fourth wave. Brazil continues to be hard hit, and India, along with the rest of South Asia, have seen cases skyrocket, fueled by B1617, a double mutant virus strain. It's already here in the U.S. Our current vaccines seem to be at least partially protective. The virus variant I'm worried about is the one that hasn't evolved yet, one that's able to completely evade our vaccines. Vaccination rates are proceeding too slowly. We may be done with COVID-19. I fear that it's not done with us. Some 600 Americans still die from COVID every single day. Viral variants are still occurring and will continue to do so. The COVID-19 vaccines are amazingly effective. We need to do a better job promoting them at home and distributing them abroad. As I've said before, this pandemic won't be over for anyone until it's over for everyone around the world. Get vaccinated. Relaxed mask guidelines aren't the answer. Masks work. Ask yourself, when was the last time you had the cold or the flu? I may not have worn my mask at Starbucks this morning, but I'm not willing to throw my mask away yet. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Fogel. Dr. Fogel is the adjunct associate professor of emergency medicine at the Warren Albert Medical School of Brown University, and Dr. Fogel is the Monitor Monday Authority on the coronavirus. Coming up next is surprising results of today's Monitor Monday listener survey. Monitor Monday is a broadcast service of Rack Monitor. What's happening this Tuesday that you don't know about? The best way to find out is to listen to Talk 10 Tuesday every Tuesday morning at 10 Eastern. Listen and learn as program hosts Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer bring you the most up-to-the-minute news and information on ICD-10. And tomorrow morning, you'll learn how to prepare for the transition to ICD-11. 
You'll also hear the latest coding news from senior healthcare consultant Lori Johnson. For the latest coding and CDI news, listen to Talk 10 Tuesday and learn about preparations that are a must for transitioning to ICD-11. That's Talk 10 Tuesday, tomorrow at 10 a.m. Eastern. Now is the time for the results of today's Modern Money Listener Survey. And once again, here's Alan Fink-Samnick. Thank you, Chuck. And it's been very interesting in the last few minutes since the survey. I've gotten quite a few emails and texts from case management colleagues who are concerned about the ongoing uh, issues with Medicare Advantage plans, whether they're more smoke and mirrors and just making things look good. It's very much reflected in our survey. How much will Medicare Advantage benefit enhancements help your fiscal bottom line? Well, they're well intended, but yet 10% of our listeners say very little, 14% say somewhat, 8%, and that's relatively small for us, say a great deal. But the verdict is still out on whether these are more pitfalls than promises. 52% do not know. And, well, only about 16% said does not apply. There will be a story in this week's Rack Monitor on the topic, and we will continue to follow it as always. Coming up next, a major teaching facility has been hit with a whistleblower complaint. And so has a big-time insurance company, Mary Inman, is standing by to report these important stories. First, how is the term utilization management different than the term utilization review? They're used interchangeably, but they shouldn't, according to our next guest. That's Dr. John Zellum. And so, Dr. Zellum, should they be used interchangeably or not, and would you explain why? Thanks, Chuck. And I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that question adequately because even as I reviewed for this, the uh, the information that's available is just as confusing as whether to use which one. But what led me to this is I go through the literature, listen to conversations, attend conferences, read posts and documents. It seems that these two terms, utilization management and utilization review, are used interchangeably. I have to admit that I am probably just as guilty of this as so many others. It it does seem pretty clear that there is a difference between the two, and understanding how they differ can help to improve communication around the subject. Their processes and meanings actually are very different, yet both assess medical care for appropriateness, and they aim to control the cost of healthcare services, which is very important in today's healthcare environment. So let's start with utilization, the term utilization review. We're all familiar with the conditions of participation on utilization review, CFR 482.30, which states that a hospital must have, in effect, a utilization review plan that provides for review of services furnished by the institution and by members of the medical staff to patients entitled to benefits under the Medicare and Medicaid programs. This is, this is not just limited to determining level of care, which one may Im- imply from this. In reality, the sole aim of utilization review is to make sure patients get the care that they need, that it is administered using proven methods, offered by an appropriate health care provider, and delivered in an appropriate setting. This should result in high-quality care administered as economically as is possible and in accordance with current evidence-based guidelines. As we know, utilization review can be done concurrently, retrospectively, and prospectively many times as we see the need for prior authorization. 
personally, I think that a lot of people look at utilization review as only the process for helping to determine proper level of care determinations. On the other hand, utilization management focuses on the strategies and policies that healthcare organizations put into place to help improve operating activities and ensure that patients receive an excellent, excellent quality of care. This falls under the auspices of the UR Committee, interesting that it's named UR Committee, as required by Medicare conditions of participation and encompasses all of the activities that a hospital performs to ensure care is appropriate and necessary. The goal is to provide continuity of care, coordination of services, and improved health outcomes while increasing the effectiveness and coordination and efficiency of services provided to patients. Other roles for utilization management is to ensure that staff resources are being utilized effectively, that there is ongoing education and monitoring, gathering of information to make sure that appropriate decisions are made and that medical costs are managed and that there's good communication between payers and providers. Quite a list of duties. So Chuck, in concluding, my summary statement is that utilization management seems to be the overarching component and utilization review becomes part of that. Now, I know there are a number of <clears throat> experts in this audience and on the panel that may not, <clears throat> excuse me, may not totally agree with this summarization on my part, but the reality is whatever term is used, there is no question that there is a distinction, but does it really make a difference in the overall care and services that are provided to our patients with what term is used? Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Zellum. That was Dr. John Zellum, founder of Streamline Consulting Services. Two big names in healthcare have been hit with whistleblower lawsuits here now with these two important stories. It's Mary Inman who returns to the broadcast with the latest news. Mary, what is it? Last week was a busy one for the settlement of whistleblower-initiated False Claims Act cases alleging healthcare fraud. Here's a recap on two of those whistleblower cases involving Dignity Health and the University of Miami. First, Dignity. In a settlement announced last week, healthcare giant Dignity Health, the fifth largest hospital system in the U.S., agreed to pay $10 million to resolve allegations raised by a whistleblower inside that one of its hospitals, St. Joseph's in Phoenix, Arizona, that they violated the False Claims Act. The central allegation in the case, which was filed in 2017 by whistleblower Dr. Bruce Kingsley, an anesthesiologist at St. Joseph's, is that the hospital billed the Medicare program for surgeries that were said to be conducted by world-class neurosurgeons, but were instead performed by inexperienced and often unsupervised trainees. According to the whistleblower complaint, the scheme involved billing Medicare for quote-unquote doubly and triply concurrent and overlapping surgeries being performed on multiple anesthetized patients simultaneously, allowing the experienced neurosurgeons to claim responsibility for multiple surgeries at the same time, billing them through federal health care programs designed for such teaching surgeries when, in fact, trainees were the ones who actually conducted the surgeries. Meanwhile, in Miami, the University of Miami has agreed to pay $22 million to settle three separate whistleblower cases brought under the False Claims Act by four whistleblowers, all of whom were physicians and executives at the University of Miami. All three whistleblower cases involve the University of Miami allegedly overcharging Medicare for doctor services and billing for medically unnecessary laboratory tests. 
The first scheme resolved by the settlement involves allegations of physicians billing Medicare as hospital facilities. Medicare allows physician offices offices to bill as hospital facilities if they meet certain conditions, but this change of status leads to higher reimbursement and higher costs to patients. Because of the higher fee, hospital facilities are required to make a disclosure to Medicare beneficiaries that explain the financial ramifications of receiving services at hospital facilities instead of physician offices. The University of Miami allegedly converted multiple physician offices to hospital facilities and then sought payment at higher rates without providing beneficiaries the required notice, even after being warned to do so by an auditor. The second resolve scheme involved allegedly medically unnecessary lab tests for patients who received kidney transplants at University of Miami's Miami Transplant Institute. A preset quote-unquote protocol of tests was ordered for each patient at UM's laboratory. The government alleged that several tests on the protocol for all kidney transplant patients were medically unnecessary and dictated by financial considerations rather than patient care. The final scheme the settlement the settlement resolved alleged that a UM hospital submitted inflated claims for reimbursement for pre-transplant laboratory testings conducted at the Miami Transplant Institute in violation of related party regulations which limit the reimbursement for tests performed by a related entity to that of the entity's actual cost. The four whistleblowers who brought these cases forward are Dr. Jonathan Lord, the former Chief Operations Officer and Chief Compliance Officer of University of Miami's Health System, Dr. Philip Chen and Joshua Yellen, both men were employed by UM's Pathology Department, and Mitchell Wallace, a former Vice President at one of University of Miami's hospitals. Now it's time for our town hall segment. David, let's take a look at some of the questions that are coming in. You bet. Chuck, there are a bunch of good questions and comments. So Dr. Hirsch, we'll start with you. So why are Interqual and MCG, which you could call Milliman or Magellan, so different? And can you give an example? You could only call it MCG because that's its real name. So careful with that because Milliman still exists as a company. Um, But I I think the best analogy is that... um, if you always use an iPhone and someone hands you an Android phone and says, go ahead and use it, and here's the manual that it comes with, and it has two pages of how to turn it on and off, you're going to have trouble figuring out how it works. They also have different databases that they've used to make determinations of when an inpatient admission is appropriate and when it's not. So without going into actual the criteria, I can't give you a specific disease diagnosis, but just to say that they are going to be different. And, and different in how to use them. And I think it's important to remember that unless you're contractually bound to use one of them, there's nothing that requires their use. And certainly Medicare has the two midnight rule. And so for Medicare, Interqual and MCG are really irrelevant. Uh, Ron, another one for you. Uh, have you heard, you? and I'm, I'm changing this question a bit. I think there are a couple of typos, so hopefully I'll get it right. But have you heard UHC state that no matter what happens besides the patient's death, they're only going to approve observation for those who are in the hospital uh, two midnights or less. Or in other words, if you're, unless you're in there for two midnights, it's only observation. Yes, we have heard that they are, they're doing that. That People approve, that meet criteria for admission. They're not allowing admission until it hits it. But, but let me add that really status doesn't matter. It's really about the payment, right? And, and 
my, my rule is if they want to tell us what rules they're using, great, hospitals can follow those rules. Um, quick analogy, imagine putting a bunch of kids on a field with a ball and saying, go play the game, and we're going to tell you who wins at the end. And they say, well, what's the game? And they say, well, you tell them, well, just play the game, and we'll tell you at the end. That's what we're doing with these insurance companies. Tell us the rules, and we're happy to play them, but we need the rules. Thanks, Dr. Hirsch. So there are a few questions for me, the first of which I think is a fair one, which is, what the heck did you say? Uh, and uh, this is about the shared visits. And I think the answer is, we're in a state of flux right now because the manual language has been pulled and CMS has said, we're pulling it, but that doesn't mean we're not covering it. So we got to see what the future holds. So I think that for right now, it means shared visits are still a thing. So we got a question here from Tina that I think is a really good one. Do you have any thoughts on shared visit documentation requirements for outpatient E&M codes? And part of why I want to focus on that is I know that CPT uses the word outpatient to describe like 99201 uh, to 205 and 211 to 215. I try not to use the word outpatient for that because I try to limit use of outpatient for hospital because there are different sets of criteria for clinic situations in hospital situations, and it's confusing for everyone. So just remember, shared visits are a hospital thing, and E&M uh, guidance for those hospital visits didn't change, just for clinic visits. So super confusing, um, and it's a semantics problem, all right? So hopefully that makes a bit of sense. Um, Dr. Reamer sent in an, a good reminder, which is that in order to bill for either an incident to or a shared visit, the physician needs to be incurring the expense for the uh, non-physician professional who's providing the service. So like if the hospital gives without any sort of charge uh, a nurse practitioner to a, to a clinic, the clinic can't bill for that person's work. And it's, it's both a coding issue and then there's arguably even a, a kickback question. So, Frank, a bunch of questions for you. So, can you maybe offer a little more detail on where your data came from? And if people are interested in knowing more about it, what do they need to do? The data comes from, well, it's proprietary. So, it comes from clients with whom I have relationships. Um, some, I said, some 100 practices, almost 70,000 physicians, where I um, provide risk assessment for those providers and they may be using um, our system in order to record their audit. So there's, this is a sort of a machine learning uh, component of the, um, of the audit process where the algorithms will process their results and then produce these data for me. And so, um, you know, some of the data I've been able to share because it's totally genericized. It doesn't list anything except the specialty, a procedure code, and the results. So, um, so that's where those data come from. They're from uh, clients with whom I have a relationship and who feed data into my portal. Does that, does that make sense? It does indeed, Frank. Thank you so much. We always love hearing your data because you are a master of it. Chuck, there are a couple of more. We'll answer those offline, and I turn it back to you. Thanks very much, David. That's going to be a wrap for this live 60-minute special edition of Monitor Monday. Thanks to our panelists, Frank Cohen, healthcare attorney, Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink-Sandrick, Dr. John Fogel, Dr. John Hall, Dr. Ronald Hirsch, healthcare attorney, David Glazer, whistleblower attorney, Mary Inman, and Dr. John Selim. And one more thing before we go, when we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. 
And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Be sure to listen to us tomorrow on Talk Ten Tuesday and learn about preparation for ICD-11. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Bucker, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Thank you very much for being with us. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.